Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Programme. You're listening to Writer Presents. This edition of Writer Presents was written and presented by Jan Carson. Jan Carson is a writer and community arts facilitator based in Belfast. Her first novel, Malcolm Orange Disappears, was published in 2014 to critical acclaim, followed by a short story collection, Children's Children, and two flash fiction anthologies, Postcard Stories and Postcard Stories 2. Her second novel, The Firestarters, won the EU Prize for Literature and was shortlisted for the Dawkey Novel of the Year Award. And her third novel, The Raptures, published in 2022, was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards Novel of the Year and the Kerry Group Novel of the Year. Her work has appeared in numerous journals and on BBC Radio 3 and 4. She has won the Harper's Bazaar Short Story Competition and has been shortlisted for the BBC National Short Story Award, the Unpost Irish Short Story of the Year and the Sean O'Fuelan Short Story Prize. She specialises in running arts projects and events with older people, especially those living with dementia, and is the editor of A Little Unsteadily Into Light, an anthology of new dementia-inspired fiction. Across three episodes of this Writer Presents programme, Jan Carson looks at writing about and through the experience of dementia, and speaks to three people with different perspectives on the subject. In this episode, Carson introduces her own writing on dementia with an excerpt of her work, and she speaks to Dr. Jane Lugea, a lecturer in English Language and Linguistics at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Jan Carson. I'm a writer and community arts practitioner based in East Belfast. For the last decade, my community arts practice has largely focused upon creatively engaging those living with dementia. I've become increasingly fascinated by how both people living with the illness and their loved ones and carers talk about living with dementia. I've read dozens of dementia narratives and spent several years on an AHRC-funded research project at Queen's University, where we looked closely at how language was used to represent dementia in contemporary fiction. When it comes to writing another's experience of dementia, I've seen best practice, worst practice, and appropriation on a grand and ugly scale. I'm keen to learn from other writers and people who've explored this topic as I try to write well about dementia myself. Although there are a handful of wonderful books, including Wendy Mitchell's excellent memoir, Somebody I Used to Know, where people in the early stages of diagnosis have recorded their own experience, the nature of dementia means it's almost impossible for those in the advanced stages to tell their story in their own voice. Therefore, the arena of dementia narrative offers an excellent opportunity to examine how a writer might effectively and ethically write as, for, and on behalf of another who has been prematurely silenced. I've written a number of short stories, a play, and a radio monologue exploring dementia narratives, and have several characters living with dementia in my novels. 
In my 2016 Radio 3 monologue, Unraveling, the actor Liam Neeson narrated the thoughts of a concert pianist struggling to perform as well as he did before his dementia diagnosis. Here's a little snippet of the monologue. Sadly, you'll have to make do with my Balamina accent instead of Liam's. Hear my fingers fiddling black keys, toes be footrun far beneath. Lean in like the music's catching, grab the guts of it and twist. Here I am undoing Ravel, knowing how it swells and soars, knowing how my fingers fold it, wrists and ankles coax it sweet. Feel it blooding in my bone guts, all the room goes sighing gently, all the room is hung on me. Holding breath like swimming creatures, thinking me the king of kings. This the old lust, this the business, this the way I'm cut to be. Head swims still as milk or water settling in a drinking glass. See me, wife one, see me boldly, not so childly, not so softish. Here's the man who stole your heart. Clear I am and sure and straight, not so muddled, not so gone. Press my tongue against the roof mouth, feel the rhythm rest in there. Then think too much, my head and damn it. Lose my fingers, lose my feet, feel the pulse go shrugging loose. Stop, stop, stop and prod the silence. No way round it or out of it. Lost I am without the music. Small and middling senseless thing. Sense their room grow thick with pity. Hear their mumbling gratitude. Cannot turn my face towards them. Shame the wife. She'll no more see me. Cannot bear the weight of this. In this piece, I paid particular attention to the linguistic issues which often emerge with aphasia, which is the loss of language associated with many different types of dementia. Part of me enjoys the creative constraints associated with dementia. I get to wrestle with language tense and unusual memory patterns. From an artistic perspective, it can be really satisfying. However, though I've had close experience of my grandparents' dementia and dozens of the wonderful people I've worked with over the years, another part of me continues to wonder whether I'm entitled to appropriate the experiences and, indeed, the voices of other individuals. I have so many questions about both the ethics and the practicalities of writing about dementia. I thought it might be worthwhile to chat to a few good friends who have way more experience in this area than me to see if together we might be able to come up with some guidelines, or at very least, important things to consider when writing about dementia. I'd like to begin by looking at how robust research might help to give the writer an ethical framework for writing dementia narratives. Recently, I was lucky enough to be part of a Queen's-based research project exploring the depiction of dementia in contemporary literature, and so it seemed really natural to have a chat with one of the amazing academics who led this project. I'll let her introduce herself. Hello, Jen. Lovely to be here. Um, so I am a 
a lecture in English language and linguistics at Queen's University Belfast. Um, what I'm interested in in my research and in my teaching is describing how the rules of language can be broken for creative and rhetorical and interesting purposes. So basically, I love language and I love when people use it in interesting ways. Um, and that's what my research has, has been on. I've been working with you over the last few years specifically on the subject of dementia. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder how, how did you first get interested in dementia um, and the research that you've, you've done into it? Uh, the first is personal. Uh, like a lot of people who write about dementia as well, I suppose. Um, and in that sense, my, my granny um, was diagnosed with dementia um, a year or two before she died at the age of 93. So she was a ripe old age before she got it and she lived a very long and healthy and happy life um, and even when she was diagnosed with dementia um, our experience of it um, it wasn't it wasn't the worst I would have to say mm. she she was very um, calm and content with it and even seemed to find some kind of solace in the way it allowed her to let go of um, having to remember things having mm. to be the matriarch having to do everything for everybody all the time and it was actually um, quite a uh, a lovely experience uh, being around her in the last couple of years. Yeah. In my research, what I was looking at was how fiction can represent the cognitive or personal experience of a character or a narrator. Um, and there's a, a concept called mind style in my field, um, and that is... Uh, well, I'm sure your audience will be very familiar with this. Um, it's the idea that when you're reading a novel or a piece of prose that you get inside the mind of a character such that you can kind of feel how they feel, mm. think how they think. they think, um, And it's very much uh, an immersive um, trying on somebody else's mind kind of experience. Well, my interest in that is this all happens through language. It all happens through uh, repeated use of patterns and how you represent the way that somebody's uh, thinking. Um, and it's all done through uh, what I would call tricks of language. So my interest in that would be trying to, as a linguist, explain what those tricks of language are, what those patterns are, and how they relate to ways of thinking. So uh, couple that with what was going on in my personal life, and I got to wondering... Well, how is dementia represented in fictional mind styles and how are writers kind of constructing uh, a way of thinking that might be recognisable as dementia? Um, so that's that's what got me interested in, and I started reading fiction along those lines. And there is this uh, idea that maybe, um, maybe reading might help us understand these kinds of experiences in a way that we didn't before. But I know you've been thinking as well about whether those experiences, what it means as a, as a creative writer to yeah. construct them and uh, your responsibilities in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you touched upon a really important thing there, like almost everybody we worked with, whether they be an academic or a creative or a creative academic, because mm -hmm. I, I think the line between is quite thin. Definitely. A lot of them got into this area of, of research because of a personal experience. I know I definitely did. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just take us through very briefly some observations about how dementia has been written about, you know, in the past and by contemporary writers that, you know, both of us know it has hasn't always been the most positive experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is interesting because that doesn't necessarily chime with mine, does it? With what I was just telling you about my granny and, and um, obviously uh, dementia, it's, it's challenging for most um, and it might 
provide a harrowing read. And in some of the texts that I studied, it did. Um, but you asked me there about the difference maybe in, in past representations and contemporary ones. I think maybe first thing to think about is that there's a lot more of dementia around in, in cultural texts, whether that's um, novels and prose or film and TV, whatever it might be. And um, people in the academy and outside of it have noticed this. There's a boom in cultural representations of dementia. Um, and I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, maybe the first one being that, well, maybe 30 years ago, we didn't have this term dementia um, and we didn't know so much about it. Um, so what might have been called dementia now was represented uh, in a way that was senile or um you know um to use I have to use that word because they didn't have one for it back then um so we're seeing more of it now because there's awareness there is a term to use to describe it um, but then I think also the aging population and the rising just awareness of it and a diagnosis of it so that's why we're seeing more um and the way in which it's being dealt with well there's a, a big variety, as you'll know yourself. And um, the way I think we could divide it up, um, in the fiction at least, is um, there's that fiction which deals directly with dementia as a theme or as a central a central topic, central concern. And the, the big... Uh, the big book there would probably be Still Alice by, by Lisa Genova. It's the one that's um, the popular fiction that um, is, you know, a bestseller. Um, and we could also think about those texts that include uh, dementia as an aspect of one character or as a, a minor part of the plot. Um, I'm thinking of Alfred in The Corrections or May in Ali Smith's There But For There, where it's one chapter. Um We've also seen uh, dementia maybe as a means to construct an unreliable narrator and that might be where the dementia is used um, to maybe as a, as a trope or more to um, carry a mis murder mystery story as in Elizabeth is missing, um, Barney's version where we've got a great unreliable narrator there um, and Alice LaPlante's turn of mind, a murder mystery. Um, now, all of these that I'm that I'm talking about um, use dementia in different ways and to various and differing um, success, I would say. Or um, uh, I think what is most important through all of them is that the, the strategies work, whatever it is, as long as respect is paid um, to dementia as a lived experience. That the writer has done their research to make sure that it's accurate in some kind of way. But um, I think in some of the novels, accuracy is achieved maybe at a medical level, but not at a social level. Yes, yeah, very or, much so. Yeah, at an emotional level, but maybe not at a medical level. Yeah. You know, I, I think so accuracy and truth in fiction is it's an interest in tautology, if you like. Um, That's a, a really nice way to lead into the research project that we, we both worked on in, in different facets over the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it was looking at those big questions of accuracy. But beneath that, there were also questions of kind of ethics and practice, yeah. good practice and in inclusion and all sorts of big questions come up. To, to get started, I wonder if you could give us just a brief overview of what the research project actually constituted. Yeah, so um, thankfully the Arts and Humanities Research Council um, 
give me a good pot of funding to be able to bring together a brilliant group of people. Um, and we carried out the project that was called Dementia in the Minds of Characters and Readers um, over the, the space of a few years, um, although the pandemic made it last a bit longer yeah. <laughs> than it should have. Uh, it was called that because there was two main facets really to the project. First of all, it involved me looking at dementia in the minds of characters. So in my field, what we do, if we're interested in identifying patterns and style in language, um, is we bring together the texts that we're interested in and we analyse them. And I did that quantitatively and qualitatively. That means I looked at a vast amount of data, a corpus, um, and then I also looked at it in more detail because you can't really talk about how language works and what it means unless you look at it in detail too. So with the corpus, I brought together uh, 400,000 words of dementia fiction told from the perspective of a character or a narrator with dementia. So um, that's quite uh, specific, isn't it? And uh, it involved short stories, uh, excerpts of prose, and sometimes whole novels, all thrown in um, to a piece of computer software and then analysing it to look for patterns. Um, but like I said, the computer can only do so much. I think we all know that with AI, um, that language isn't really its forte, is it? You ask Google Translate and you'll come out with some mumbo-jumbo. So it involves a little bit of... Um, kind of a close analysis using frameworks from my field as well. Um, with a, a combination of methods there, then I was able to, um, I've, I've written an article on this and talk about the kind of patterns that I spotted in the language and the way that contemporary uh, writers are representing dementia in the minds of characters. So that was the first part of the project. And the second part then um, where I was really grateful for your input, Jan, and the input of um, some colleagues from social sciences in Queens, Gemma Kearney and Paula Devine, looked at how readers then respond to this kind of dementia fiction. Um, with uh, the hypothesis that perhaps um, prose that represents the mind of someone living through dementia might facilitate awareness, understanding, empathy... Um, etc. So we took excerpts from the, the fiction that I had looked at and used them in reading groups with various groups of people um, to, to try and understand if this kind of fiction may facilitate awareness. It had quite a big effect, I think, on, on the way people understood um, the lived experience of dementia. So we take what we know, what we are exposed to in fiction, and um, it helps to shape our understanding of, of the issue in, in real life. And I think that was a very unique factor of this project, the blend of people who were involved mm -hmm. in it. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that blend of having the academics, the writers, the people who have dementia, the carers, all of them in the mix, what, um, what did that bring to the project that sets it apart as different from other kind of more academic projects yeah um yeah it's a good point Jan and I think uh, often what happens in my field um and perhaps in um universities more generally um definitely in my field what we would do is we would um go out and use these methods that I've talked about to analyze um, the fiction and we would write up our findings in um very expensive paywalled uh, journal articles and um 
never get paid for the trouble. <laughs> of course, the academic publishing is another thing. Um, and uh, hide away that research and nobody would ever know anything about it. And of course, we would make some um, generalizations about what this kind of language uh, what kind of effects it would have on readers. But those would be completely unfounded because we didn't actually ask anybody. <laughs> so the, what this project does then um, is, uh, like I said, we took the my analysis of the fiction and we asked real readers, well, how do you feel about what you see in this text? What do you see um, in, in this kind of fiction? How does it, um, how do you respond to these kinds of characters? And not only that, but we asked four very different groups of people. So um, there were four different reading groups. The first one had people living with dementia. Um, and that was incredibly important and insightful to include those in the, in the project. Uh, we recruited them through Dementia NI, uh, a brilliant charity here in, in the north of Ireland um, that looks to empower people living with dementia to uh, assist them in continuing to be active members of society and finding new friends and keep, just to keep on going um, after a dementia diagnosis. Um, so including uh, that brilliant group of participants who were at some crack as well, yeah, really, really good much fun, so. <laughs> uh, was... Um, to be honest, we went out of our way to do it and we had to jump through loads of hoops with an ethics form and so much bureaucracy to be able to include them. And it was so worthwhile because it wasn't just about ticking an inclusion box in the end. Uh, what they had to say about the fiction and kind of the, the creative representation of their lived experience was really, really interesting. And they were also incredibly grateful to be included and to have an opportunity to talk about uh, fictional representations of what they are going through. Um, so that was that was fascinating. And I, I do think that is something that is beginning to emerge within this area, that we're seeing more people who are living with dementia actually telling their own stories in, in fiction and in non-fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, we're both big fans of Wendy Mitchell and yeah. Wendy's books have done immensely well and she co-writes them with Anna Wharton, but they're very much a collaboration. And, you know, we'll, I'm going to talk to Sarah Hesketh later on, a poet who's done some collaborative work. Um, that idea of, you know, giving agency back to the person with dementia and giving language back to them in a way that they're able to tell their story on in words on paper. Yeah, that's it's it. It's huge. Yeah, there's ways and means around it, isn't it? So I suppose one of the things that also drew me to uh, dementia being represented in fiction was that kind of locked, the idea that you can't access the later stages of dementia. You can't read about them because... Uh, unfortunately, the person who might be experiencing that can't pen them, can't put them to paper. Um, and the only way to access it is through fiction. But that doesn't mean that it has to be void of the, the lived experience and the person who is going through. There yeah. are ways of including them in the process. And that's something I've learned through you as well, Jan, is that you, because you definitely, I've learned more about the creative process and how that can be um uh, how it can involve some kind of activism and how it can involve um, the people that you're writing about. 
Yeah. Um, I wonder, Jane, just to bring you back to some of the, the bones of the research, because I find it fascinating, the linguistic side of it. As a writer who puts things on paper and doesn't often think about what I'm writing, I'm just getting the story down. Mm-hmm. I find it super useful, some of the actual research that you came up with, the things that you find mm-hmm. in in um, contemporary literature that writers were using to convey this dementia experience. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what you found well, in 400,000 words um, that I studied, uh, a lot. And some of it, like I said, was found through the quantitative corpus methods. Probably the, the key finding there that's interesting and useful is this idea of a keyword. So if you want to know what is interesting about a particular data set of language, you have to compare it to what's called a reference corpus. So if I want to know what's particular about dementia fiction or fiction told from the perspective of a character living with dementia in the long form, uh, I have to compare that data set to general contemporary fiction to see what's uh, distinct. Um, So I did that. I compared my corpus with a reference corpus of contemporary fiction um, and it shows up words that are statistically overused in the dementia fiction corpus. And then I was able to categorize them into kind of um, domains, if you like, um, into categories. And uh, what came up there were lots of underspecific words. So if if you can imagine just the word girl, woman. Interestingly, it was the female gender um, terms that came up. And Uh, we did find that a lot, a bias towards older women were the predominant kind of narrators in these texts yes the predominant narrators and and carers too even talking about family members it was often the daughters that were involved in the care so yes it is quite gendered a lot of this um towards towards women in in both the position of the person living with dementia and in the caring role um so under specific terms were overused um and when I say overused I don't I'm not being evaluative about that I just mean this is what I saw you find more of these of terms that say uh, something someone um things like that thing actually is in there as well um and body parts as well so the word hands and the word faces um and I find this uh, as you can imagine you know the there's the, the quantitative results don't mean much unless you start going digging then and looking close reading and and looking around and see why that might be and of course it's because when writers are uh, presenting the experience of a character living with dementia they are talking um, they are finding it difficult to find a word so they will refer to someone came into the room instead of um, Joe Bloggs came into the room Um, and they will refer to um, maybe their uh, their face instead of of um, the person who, who, who it might be. So that might explain in part the body parts as well. Um, but then also uh, something I found, this is where the kind of the quantitative and the qualitative research help each other out. Because I also found that um, there was a wealth of sensory descriptions, um, descriptions of the scene, of how the person felt, and often in the present tense as well, which is interesting. So many of these stories were in the present tense. So it's got to do with present experience and how the character with dementia is uh, 
is is feeling in that moment, perhaps because memory is failing, is not working so well. So it's very much a time, a present time and place. One of the things that first drew me to um, working with, with dementia and writing about dementia was the language and the constraint of the language. Um, I was doing a workshop once with um, a group of people and a lady asked for, she wanted a glass, but she had lost the word for glass. And so she said to me, could, could you pass me the thing that the wetness goes in? And it's so beautiful and so poetic. And I began to think of this as a creative constraint, as if some words were lost, how could you as a writer work around it and come up with something perhaps more beautiful than the original? I wonder, is that anywhere? Is that me just being, you know, pulling an idea out of nowhere? Does it exist? Uh, of course it exists, Jan. Um, in, the, in the research, looking into contemporary fiction about dementia, what I find was kind of a hallmark of it is what we call under lexicalization and that is the the lack of a word for something so this is a real symptom in um in dementia as a as a condition or as a group of conditions it's uh, anomic aphasia which is when you lose uh, the power to to be able to put a word to a mm. concept um in fiction um when a writer is talking about or trying to represent the limitations of someone exper- someone's experience, a character's experience, they can do that by uh, having a limited vocabulary to do so. So they're, uh, and so it's not just for writing about dementia, but for uh, any kind of condition, you might fail to have a word that the character can use to describe something that's easily recognisable by the by the reader, or well, you might forget it in that instant. But, um, so. That's where I find uh, under specific terms like thing and thingies. But sometimes uh, they might, it might be more interesting the way that you kind of circumlocute yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that provides a means for being really creative with language. So the example I have here is um, an Elizabeth is missing. Um, and the character, main character with dementia is describing the doctor leaving her home after a, a visit. He is already inserting the little plugs, the wire shells, back into his ears while he talks on to Helen. And I wonder briefly what it is he listens to. I cut my hands over my own ears, straining to hear the sea-like music of my circulation, the singing of my blood. And you can see how um, by using the word shell to describe the the earbuds or whatever it is that the doctor is using, um, Maud has kind of, uh, she's adopted a metaphor if you like it's Mm. metaphorical language isn't it and then that allows the author to kind of continue on that trope and in the rest of the novel you see that shells are really important to Maud to the main character who kind of collects them like little totems um so uh it it it, that lack of a word uh, shouldn't just be seen as a lack like you say it can provide something a creative means to to play with language and that creativity with language is something that the you know, writers of fiction are exploiting. But then, as, as your example shows, yeah, people who are living with dementia are, are, are doing that in their everyday language as well. You know, everyday language is just as beautiful sometimes. And we'll see that Sarah Hesketh, who um, I'll talk to you later, she has some beautiful examples of small phrases that she's picked up from being mm-hmm. in a care facility mm-hmm. that are so poetic, they just went straight into her poems as a piece of poetic yes. language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen that repeatedly in, in writers who are working in um, groups where they're engaging one-on-one with people who have dementia. Mm. Sometimes you just get given a gift. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And just, I suppose, in the ethics of representing that as well in the in the text. Um, 
you are weaving their their real words into your fictional account but um like you said like we've been talking about if that's if the whole process has been informed by people living with the condition and you're doing it in an ethical way then then that's great but I know you've been thinking really, really hard about writers and the kind of the relationship between all of the, the people who were part of this project. Uh, you know, it began with literature. It went through the process of engaging people who have dementia. It ended up with we were able to give this research to some fantastic contemporary writers and they produced a beautiful anthology of new work in response um, and I wonder from your reading, from your experience, what, what do you think are some of the difficulties that writers experience when they come at trying to accurately portray something as complex as dementia? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and from, as you said, I'm not, I'm not a writer. I'm not a creative writer, at least. Um, but from having looked at the fiction and then having worked with you and uh, with the grips of creative writers, I can see... It's very difficult to achieve that accuracy, um, especially if you want to achieve the accuracy on all those kinds of levels. So, of course, the medical accuracy, you might have to do some reading on uh, on the what exactly dementia is and the different kinds of dementia that there are, um, the symptoms that might go along with that and how those symptoms are experienced by real people. Um, so there's the medical accuracy, but that can only take you so far. Mm. And the example that I gave, um, if we think about uh, Still Alice, was written by a neuroscientist. Medically, it is completely accurate, but socially, it's devoid. <laughs> um, I, I only say that because I think maybe it doesn't take a very... Uh, critical stance towards other things that influence dementia and that might be the social class of the person and the family going through it or um or race or any of those intersectional issues as well um that you know that's kind of all glossed over in in still alice even though medically it's 100 percent correct and i would say emotionally it's quite in tune as well because some of the passages are that we used in the reading groups they blew people away um and people obviously like it you know it's a big bestseller huge bestseller so there, there's so many levels on which you need to do the research. And um, yes, reading up on, on medical accounts, but also um, talking to people living with dementia. That was a huge thing that I learned from our project. And um, the, the biggest surprise that I got was how much they could inform and shape what we were doing in a way that was um, ethical as well. And that you could be um, a little bit more confident that your discussion of dementia was informed by the lived experience. Um, so talking to people living with dementia might get, help you get some kind of more of a social and um, maybe emotional accuracy. And I think there was that tension as well that we hit upon a few times that we're also artists. We're here to tell a story. We're not here to be like the poster children for the Alzheimer's Society. So it's also a piece of art that has to stand as a, a story that a reader will want to read, characters that people want to invest in. So there's a tension there yes. as well. And I think you're absolutely right. And, and and that came probably to the fore most in the text that I looked at, um, the ones that use dementia, um, because let's face it, dementia it provides an interesting paradox for writers because it challenges everything that we know about how to write a story it challenges the memory the the capacity to put events into an order um the capacity to uh 
attribute words to a character. All, all of yeah. those are challenged when the character has dementia. Um, so that's what makes it interesting for writers, isn't it? I mean, it helps you um, explore different forms and be more experimental. But then, of course, you've got to think about whether that aesthetic freedom um, needs to be considered, how you, how you consider that in relation to an ethical responsibility. Um, that's that's obviously a difficult tightrope to walk, um, but one that you can do with a bit more confidence, I think, if you have involved people living with dementia or yeah. um, and their carers in the process. And I love that several of the stories which came out of our anthology, the dementia characters were not nice characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They were believable, intriguing, interesting, horrible characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there is something like quite ethical about that. About saying it's actually reducing someone's experience to always make them a nice fluffy grandmother in the corner. Okay. Um, some people with dementia are like that. Some people with dementia are awful. Mm-hmm. And we want the whole range of the experience. Yeah, that's true. And even in, if you remember the reading groups that we hosted as part of the research project, um, there was one character who was uh, from the wilderness, Samantha Harvey's The Wilderness, and he was morally, morally objectionable. Um, and in this excerpt, he was um, thinking about the time he had cheated on his wife. Isn't that right? And, and, and that tension between having a, a moral stance towards the character with dementia um, as well as um, so be, being critical towards them as well as having some kind of sympathy because of the experience he's going through. It's an interesting one for readers as well and they got so so much out of that, didn't they? Um, and then it, it helps remind people, which I think fiction is uniquely placed to do, um, is that of the humanity of people with dementia. So my social scientist colleagues um, would talk a lot about how when dementia is represented in cultural texts, film, TV, um, even just in, in the media more generally, um, it's always um, people with dementia are dehumanised. They're talked about as if they were zombies. Um, whereas fictional characters, especially if they're well-written, what they do is provide a rounded picture of someone who might be a bit questionable or uh, is a complex, difficult character, but just happens to have dementia as well. And I think fiction is quite uniquely placed to build interesting characters like that. Absolutely. Um, just to finish off, Jane, I wondered if you, from your side of the academic table, if there was one piece of advice that you could offer to writers like myself when they come to take on the task of, of writing about dementia, what, what would it be? One particular piece of advice would be to do your research, but I think as we've talked about today, to do it on all those different levels. So that is a medical one. Try to make sure that the symptoms you're representing are accurate, um, but that will only take you so far. Um, it's also important to think about the character as a as a complete person, and the only way to do that is to really talk to people who have been uh, going through this, um, whether it's living with dementia themselves or as a family member. Um, I, I think I started off today talking about my own experience, my own personal one with dementia and my granny. That's that's just one experience. And there are so many different kinds. So I think having your own, your own experience is a good um, starting point. Mm-hmm. But because dementia is uh, affects people in so many different ways, um, it, it's worthwhile going beyond that to, to find out how it's affecting other people. Jane, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you this afternoon. Thanks for stopping by. Not at all. Lovely to see you again, Jan.
You've been listening to Writer Presents. This edition of Writer Presents was written and presented by Jan Carson and featured a conversation with Dr. Jane Lugea. Tune into episode two, where Carson speaks with theatre maker and playwright Quelan Curry Thompson. Writer Presents is produced with the support of the Arts Council and Corla Allian. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.com. Dot IE.